well-to-do family, that did not mean any wealth passed on to her future husband's family. Laura Millington had no dowry to speak of, and little jewellery besides. And while her future husband's family, the Stamfords, might be land-rich, they were certainly not cash-rich. They worked for their money, tilled the fields and harvested, and grazed their animals, and always had, and always would, please God. "'Would you like another cup of tea, Janet, dear?' Betty asked her childhood friend in a flat voice. Janet nodded, but as she dutifully handed Betty her pretty cup and saucer with its accompanying apostle teaspoon, Betty raised her eyes to hers for the first time. Janet gave a sharp intake of breath, for in Betty's eyes she saw reflected nothing except misery. John Stamford was besotted with Laura, as well he should be. A stocky, stout young man with a florid complexion, he could hardly believe his luck when Laura Millington set her cap at him, making it quite plain that she thought he was the handsomest man who had ever come into her life, and quite the most witty. She seemed to find anything and everything that he said funny, laughing inordinately at his attempts at humour, and even extolling his seat on his horse. "'How could you?' Laura's best friend Jenny asked her. "'I mean to say, Lala, look at him, would you?' They were both seated at the window, watching the hunt meeting in front of the Stamford solid, square, 18th-century house, observing the polished hunters, their breath steaming the air, their assorted bridles, double or single reins, snaffle or curb bits, betraying their tractability, their tightly held mouths indicating the nerves of their riders.' for who knew who would come back from that day's hunting on the hard, frosty ground in the English winter? Laura stared down at her fiancé. She had become engaged to John Stamford, knowing full well that she neither loved him nor saw anything remotely attractive in him. He was, to her mind, a poor sort of creature, the kind of young man who could never attract a full-blooded girl such as herself. But, as one of her aunts had told her, a girl must get married. And so marry him she would. She was, after all, twenty-two, and quite sure that she was about to gather dust on the shelf, about to become an old maid. And this, despite always finishing up the last sandwich on the plate, as the old country superstition dictated. I just don't know how you could tell John that he looked divine on his horse. I mean, look at him. Jenny started to shriek with laughter. <laughs> Look! Laura, too, started to laugh. But as she did so, her hand flew up to her mouth to stop a sudden sob, as she remembered how divine Gerald Hardwick had looked on his magnificent grey hunter, how elegant his figure in his beautifully cut hunting coat, how handsome the set of his head on his slim shoulders. Her eyes filled with tears at the memory. To cover this, she turned quickly away, but happily, Jenny was still swaying from side to side, mimicking a farmer's seat. What on earth was she doing marrying John Stamford, a thick-boned son of a country bumpkin? But it was too late now. It was a late spring afternoon in Knightsbridge, and the trees in the London parks were beginning to paint the town landscape with that fine, fresh green that Londoners so enjoy to see. Ellen Millington, wife of Laura's uncle, Staunton Millington, was taking tea 
with Laura's former fiancé's mother, Sally Hardwick. Not a happy occasion for either of them, but something upon which Ellen, for the sake of her husband's family, had insisted. For in her view, the Hardwicks could not and should not be allowed to what she called get away with it. Laura might be hitched to someone else, but nevertheless, salt must be rubbed into several people's wounds, or she and Staunton would not be able to retire to the south of France with clear consciences. Of course, Ariel did actually steal Gerald from Laura. You know that, don't you, Sally? Yes, of course. Sally Hardwick sighed inwardly. She knew exactly why Ellen Millington had called round to take tea with her at her London house. She also knew that whatever her punishment, it must be borne, as it was thanks entirely to her son Gerald. A young man breaking off an engagement was always scandalous. But when the young man happened to be your son, the backwash was constant and humiliating. So, what's to be done now, do you think, Sally? After all, it is plain to see that Gerald and Ariel are about as unsuited to each other as it is possible to be. This is a right mess of pottage, to be sure. Wouldn't you agree? I could not but agree, Ellen. But what's to be done with the young when they are too old to tell? Gerald is a sweet-natured boy, but weak. And Ariel is such a very beautiful creature. He had his head turned by her. It does happen, you know, really, it does. Too feeble-minded, your generation, that's what's wrong with you. Too feeble-minded, not strict enough. If you can't tell the young when they're taking a wrong turning, you will bring up a generation of weaklings, mark my words. In our day, we children were never married to whomsoever we chose. Our parents went to the begat book, and they chose for us. They knew better than us, and we knew they knew better than us. But what can one say? With the present Prince of Wales besotted with an American divorcee, and heaven only knows what else going on, what can one say? Well, quite, I do see, and I must say, Laura has behaved awfully well, and now she is safely married and settled, not too much of a trial, after all. Believe me, Gerald will live to rue the day, Ellen stated with some satisfaction. Ariel is not steady. In fact, I would say that Ariel is a bolter, if ever I saw one. She has been a bit flighty in the past, but such a beauty. I tell you, if Tasha Millington, if Laura's sister-in-law had her way, Laura would have sued for breach of promise. But no, she was off seconds later, on the rebound, as girls who have been hurt so often are, pinging off the nearest lump of beef. In this case, poor John Stamford. And all of it just to show Gerald. What a catastrophe. If Gerald had not been sent to Germany on some footling mission for his regiment the moment he became engaged to Laura, and if Ariel had not been visiting some grand friends at some schloss or another, Laura and Gerald would now be happily married with at least one brat on the way. 
Alan paused to sip her tea before resuming. But as it is, she has settled for marrying down, and doubtless is generally making a hash of everything. Laura will not be suited to country life, she went on relentlessly. A large working farmhouse is not the kind of house that will satisfy a girl like Laura. She will be forever standing in the milking sheds with the cows because the dairy maid is off. But there you are. It's all spilt milk now, and bite on the bullet she must. Sally found herself frowning vaguely at nothing much, probably because she was becoming a little confused with all the talk of milk and bullets. At least Laura is married, Ellen. That at least is something. Exactly. And when all is said and done, both Ariel and Laura have made their beds, and now they must lie in them, and that's all there is to it. Yes, of course. Quite right. That is all there is to it. Laura looked over at her new husband. Her honeymoon had been bad enough, and it was no good anyone saying that shutting your eyes and thinking of England took your mind off being made love to by an oaf, because it jolly well didn't. And now she was about to give birth, she regretted the honeymoon even more. What had she been thinking, marrying John Stamford? But too late now to think. She gave a sudden gasp. John watched his beautiful young wife disappearing through the bedroom door out onto the landing prior to trying to find her way down the dark corridor to their only bathroom. "'Why are you going to the bathroom, my love?' "'Because I'm having a baby, that's why, John. Why do you think?' Laura was gone before John's next thought.